And so gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the reflections of our hearts and minds together be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So let's imagine, just for a moment, that you're on the edge of the crowd that's followed Jesus in his ministry up to this point. You haven't heard everything, and you haven't understood everything you've heard. But you think you've got the general drift of what Jesus is talking about. You find it totally compelling and at the same time disconcerting. And you, in you go with Jesus into the synagogue on this particular Sabbath day. It's where we find the 13th chapter of Luke's gospel taking place. You've seen Jesus healed the crippled woman in the doorway and how the religious leaders were thoroughly unimpressed. Everyone in that moment, though, is totally focused on Jesus and what he's doing. And a person who's supposed to be in charge of what's going on, the person who is supposed to have everyone's attention, is thoroughly unimpressed that everyone is looking at Jesus instead of him. He feels upstaged and lets his anger out in the form of a public rebuke. It's a bit like having someone arrested because their band got to a higher place in the charts than yours or their football team had beaten his. Someone new has come into town and it's upsetting the order of things. Now, sometimes when that happens, and that may have happened where you work or uh, at school or wherever it is that you spend so much of your time, but whenever that happens, sometimes things readjust and recalibrate really quickly. People get over it quickly. People move on. Other times, not so much. Jesus' arrival on the scene here in this moment, and indeed more broadly in the religious community in which he finds himself, is not something that everyone is taking well. And in some ways, the little phrases that Steve read for us this morning come out of almost a sort of explanation about this whole dynamic. A kingdom is like a tiny seed that produces a whole plant which can then accommodate all the birds of the sky. One act in one synagogue on one Sabbath. What on earth can that really achieve? One healing, one day. But when Jesus sowed seeds of the kingdom, you see, nobody knows what the results will be and the impact that it will have. Or instead, the kingdom as a small helping of yeast hidden away in the flower. It seems insignificant. But before long, the whole mixture has proved and the dough has risen. One healing of one woman on one day. And yet every time we take one step towards the kingdom of God, we claim another little victory. We'll find there are all sorts of repercussions, some that will be known and obvious and others that will not. Both of these images that Jesus gives us for how the kingdom of God works, what the kingdom of heaven is like, have small actions with significant consequences. And this, says Jesus, is the way the kingdom of God works. You know, uh, governments, including ours, although I suspect they've been a bit busy doing other things this week, um, have uh, units and departments dedicated to finding the small things that they can do 
that will have a significant impact on the way that we behave. Downing Street is called the Behavioral Insights Unit. In other, I know, it feels a little bit sort of, I don't know, I don't know what, the, I haven't got an appropriate word I can share with you, so I'm going to move on. Um, but there, it happens all over the world, actually. It's, called, it's all based on something called the nudge theory. And there are examples like um, on some of the forms you get given from HMRC, it will say something online's at the top. 85% of people who get this form send it back in a week. And that genuinely means that there are an extra 3 or 4% of people who will say, oh, I better fill it in and send it back within a week. And it works. It works, this stuff. Right? The small things. They're, they're, so there are people whose life is spent looking for the small things that make a big difference. You'll have more edifying examples, I'm sure. But Jesus isn't just about nudging us to fill in forms more appropriately. In fact, I'm not sure Jesus is worried about that at all. This is about something far more remarkable and life-transforming. So much of what we're taught about how the world works and what we should chase after and value turns out not to be what's important in the kingdom of God at all. The kingdom of God has a totally different set of values and goals, a totally different way of seeing people and places. What these two pictures, the mustard seed and the yeast, show us is that big and loud and snazzy and charismatic and in-your-face and confident is not always where God is at work. God prefers to potter at the margins of the garden, to talk to the people sitting in the corners of the room, to bring salvation in wonderfully unexpected ways. And so we're not to be discouraged by what might look like in any moment, a lack of success, which is a thoroughly unchristian word. God is at work, just as the seed and the yeast carry bigger futures within them. The challenge for us is not to get overwhelmed by the enormity of the task or the doggedness of opposition. It's true that for Jesus, on his journey to Jerusalem, death lies ahead. It doesn't look good at all. But it doesn't mean that God isn't in it and that God isn't at work. The cross is humiliation. The cross is failure. Yet because of it, because of the cross and the resurrection that follows on after, our sins are washed away and we can live forever. The cross looked like it was all over, but instead it turned out to be the beginning of the most spectacular new chapter written in history. And so I guess there's something important for us in here, perhaps for you, maybe for us together as a church. That there might often be points where there is something, maybe more than one thing, where something's been done, something's been started, but there isn't a lot to show for it yet. You've done the revision, but you've not got the exam results. You've made the decision, but you don't know how it's going to work out. You've planted the seeds, but nothing has come up above the surface of the soil. And in those moments, we're to think of the seed, we're to think of the yeast, and to be thankful for God is at work. And small acts can affect lives far beyond any one time and place. The mustard seeds and the yeast are not much to look at, they're not very impressive. But give either of them something to work on, sow the seed, mix the yeast with the flour, and the results can be astounding. A tree big enough for birds to nest in, 
bread enough to feed a family for a month. If the kingdom is heaven, it's like this. Then it's surprising and potent and there is always more to it than meets the eye. God isn't done yet. God's calling us to keep going, to keep planting the seeds, adding the yeast, to keep showing the love, sharing the truth, pointing people to Jesus, demonstrating God's mercy. You know, I think there is something else in this for us today, too. You see, these two pictures that we're given of the mustard seed and the yeast are pretty soon followed on by three more in the next few verses. The kingdom of God is also like buried treasure and like a fine pearl and like a net cast into the sea. The images come quickly, one right after the other, with no real preparation, no warm-up, no explanation, no time for questions, no time for answers. And it isn't like Jesus to rattle a few things in that way. Jesus usually takes a bit more time, especially in Luke's gospel and John's gospel. He gathers his listeners around him. He slides into his tales with one of the famous introductions, like there once was a landowner, there once was a king. His followers sit down and they listen, knowing that the story will be full of meaning for them, knowing that they need to listen well. But these five flashes of the kingdom come at us so quickly that there's no time to settle and consider. Jesus goes through them quickly, like scenes glimpsed through the window of a fast-moving train. The kingdom of heaven is like this and like this and like this, he says. It's almost like Jesus doesn't want us to think too much about each individual picture but instead to be dazzled by the number and variety of things that the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like this, and like this, and like this. And perhaps the thing that connects them all, the striking thing about all these images, I think, is their hiddenness. The seed is hidden in the ground. The yeast is hidden in the dough. The treasure is hidden in the field. The pearl is hidden among the other pearls. The net hidden in the depths of the sea. And if the kingdom of heaven is like these, then it's not something that's always easy or obvious, but something that we might need to search for, something that's just below the surface of things, waiting to be discovered and claimed. And so whether it begins as a seed hidden in the ground or treasure hidden in the field, the kingdom comes when it's no longer hidden but revealed, when the tree is fully grown and the treasure chest is open when what was lost is found and what was secret is known and what was hidden away is brought out before everyone else. Which rather begs the question, what can we do? Is there anything we can do to make this happen a little more often than it does? Would you like more glimpses of the kingdom of God than you currently have? I would. Where do we begin? All of the metaphors are fine. All of the pictures about yeast and seeds are interesting. But when it comes right down to hunting for the kingdom of heaven, where on earth are we supposed to start? It feels like, does it not, that we should start in some place that's really holy, some place that's extraordinary, perhaps a medieval monastery, an old cathedral, working with scholars, translating ancient texts, perhaps if we knew more Hebrew, or perhaps... We would find it working in the slums with the sick and the dying, with the Christians who serve in remarkable ways in such places. Maybe, I know, we should begin in the Holy Land. 
maybe at St. Paul's Cathedral, maybe the Vatican, then again, it might not be where we are as long as we keep our eyes open for the extraordinary clues. Perhaps it's not about where we start, but rather about being willing to keep our eyes open for heavenly visions and listening out for heavenly voices. Because if the kingdom of God is hidden in this world, it's hidden really well some days, is it not? And only the most dedicated detectives among us stand a chance of finding it, perhaps. Unless, of course, God has resorted to the oldest trick in the book, and God has in fact hidden it in plain sight, like the keys on my desk. There is always the possibility, you know, that God decided to hide the kingdom of heaven not in any extraordinary places that specialist ultra-spiritual treasure hunters would be sure to check, but in the last place that any of us might look, namely in our ordinary circumstances, in each and every day of our lives, like a silver spoon in the drawer with all the Ikea ones, or the diamond necklace in a jewellery box along with the cheap and chunky stuff, the kingdom of heaven mixed in with the regular and the unspectacular, as easy to find as a child's smile when they awake from sleeping, or an encouraging text after a hard week, or the first thunderstorm after a long drought. Signs of the kingdom of heaven, clues to the holiness hidden in the dullest of our days. Jesus knew it all along. Why else would he talk about heaven in terms of farmers and fields and baking bread? and merchants buying and selling things, and fishermen sorting fish, unless he's trying to tell us that the kingdom of heaven is something to do with these very things, that our treasure is not buried in some exotic faraway place that requires a special map, but that X marks the spot right here, right now, in all the ordinary people and places where we spend our time. That ordinary of your life is sacred. And nowhere is this clearer than at the table where bread and wine speak to us of salvation and sacrifice and hope. The last place we usually look is right under our feet in everyday activities and interruptions and accidents and encounters. What possible significance could your trip to the shops have? How could something as common as needing to go and get petrol be a door to a greater life? When a person walks into our day in a moment we hadn't planned and think we don't have time for, where might God be in that? I wonder if one of the reasons that many of us have times where we struggle to see where the kingdom of God is around us is because we're standing on it. X marks the spot beneath our feet. The treasure we're after, the glimpses of God that we seek, isn't something we need to go on a lengthy spiritual expedition to find. We don't need expensive equipment or superior knowledge or special company. All we lack more often than not is the willingness to imagine that we already have everything that we need. The only thing missing is our willingness to be exactly where we are. For God is there. So friends, this morning, if you've run out of breath, or you've run out of faith, then I invite you to stop 
and to take in what you have and where you are. For God is already there. God is already here. Jesus is showing us that we have everything that we need. If we want to speak of heavenly things, Jesus seems to be saying to us in these pictures, that actually we start by talking about earthly things, ordinary things. If we want to describe that which is beyond words, we start with the words that we know, like woman, field, man, seed, bird, fish, air, yeast, pearl, net, joy, bread, wine, and all the rest. The kingdom of heaven is like these things. The kingdom is found in these things. These are the places to dig for God. These are the places to look for the will and the rule and the presence of the creator of the universe and the one who knows your name. If we cannot find something of the kingdom in those places, it's likely we won't find it anywhere else. Because, friends, earth is where the seeds of hope and heaven are sown. And their treasure is the only thing worth living for.